0: Alright, well we're going to continue on today uh, with Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to wrap the chapter up this morning. Um, As we talked last week, we basically um, established a a general theme that really emerges from the chapter itself. this, This theme or this picture, if you will, of this pathway of wisdom. And we talked about how this pathway of wisdom is in fact a long pathway. In other words, it's not oriented toward quick answers, uh, quick solutions, quick formulas that you can just um, add one plus one and get two, you know, this plus that equals wisdom. It's a long pathway. It's also an old pathway. We talked about how um, the section where we're introduced to Solomon's father's instruction, he, he, he basically quotes uh, David and, and quotes the instruction that he received and, and, and in a way in, implies or infers that the wisdom that he is passing on to his sons is not something new. This is not some new contrivance of his. It's not some new uh, fangled idea or some new philosophy of life. But this is this is a, a, an old, ancient uh, truth. This is this is wisdom that's been passed down, and and really gives the the indication of its transcendent nature. It's not something that is um, temporary. It's not something that just comes and goes with the changing times or the changing preferences of of culture or of people. Um, It is something that is long and old and well-established. And we also pointed out that it is identified as this pathway. You see these ideas of a pathway emerging out of chapter 4, Routinely, the term the way or the paths or the walk that you're walking or the run that you're running. Um, this idea of wisdom being this pathway and, and really the, the indication here, the idea here, is that wisdom is not some final destination that you just arrive at and all of a sudden you've achieved wisdom. Um, we've talked about this before, but it's not. It, oftentimes, I think uh, it's, it's, it's easy for us to maybe slip into some thinking or or, or at least people to slip into thinking that wisdom is some kind of you know, more mystical, ethereal, secret kind of knowledge that you can uh, achieve or arrive at. And really what Proverbs chapter 4 does is it just puts it sort of literally on the ground. It, it identifies it as a pathway. It's, it's a way of life. It's a way of living out truth. It's a way of applying truth uh, to life and, and applying God's truth, applying transcendent truth, applying old truth and applying it over the long haul. That, that is kind of the idea here. We also talked about how this pathway of wisdom, it's long, it's old, but it's also this pathway of words. You see this idea of, of words or propositional truth, we called it, um, um, truth that can be presented, it can be understood, it can be read, it can be memorized, it can be contemplated, it can be meditated upon, it can be analyzed, it can be thought about. And you see this over and over again in Proverbs chapter 4. Hear and be attentive. uh, The idea of good precepts or my teaching. Um, Hold fast to my words, my commandments. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Accept my words. Keep hold of instruction. Be attentive to my words. This re- repeated refrain of the nature of wisdom—it's comprised of words. It's understandable, which really ties into this idea of, it, of the practicality of it, of it being a path. It's not something that's overly mystical and out there. And you, you know, you hopefully one day you'll kind of arrive at this, you know, elevated plane of, of wisdom. That's not how Proverbs identifies it. It identifies it as this long old pathway, and it's comprised of knowable, understandable. Information of knowable truth, of words, of commandments, of precepts, and we we made the point. We kind of drove home the point to think about this in light of, in light of both um, the the nature of youth in general, because this is instruction to someone who is younger. It's a father teaching a son, and we and we talked about how you know oftentimes the char- it's characteristic of young people to. To want things quickly, they they want things instantly. There's generally a lack of of patience. There's an impulsiveness that corresponds to to youth. Um, There's oftentimes there's a sort of a disdain for old things. You know, uh, a disdain for you know that that's just old stuff. And there's a there's a more focus and intrigue for what's new and adventurous. And so this this and we we talked about and I read a a couple of different articles. About the the nature of our changing um, society as it relates to technology and the communication of information, and how that's really changing how people, especially young people who've grown up in a digital age, consume information, and how uh, you know sound bites and snippets of information, and you know LOLs and you know emojis and all the sort of abbreviation of communication. Also battles against the pursuit and gaining of wisdom it's it 's a big hurdle. these are big hurdles in our day and time and so it's it's imperative that we kind of recognize uh, the nature of this challenge and and seek to both rise to it to overcome it ourselves but also in the instruction of the younger generations and, and our responsibility as as parents and adults to pass on wisdom to future generations, how there are some significant hurdles here. There's some significant in, built-in sort of cultural and experiential and and age-related resistance to this pathway of wisdom that are just there, and we have to understand that. Um, so let's read chapter four together, and we'll get down to our focus, because the last point that I, I highlighted in... in indicated we'd be talking about this week, is that this pathway of wisdom runs through the heart. So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, this wisdom that as it flows out of the heart, and really how, how life itself flows out of the heart. But let's read chapter four together and just kind of get the whole chapter in our minds. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place you She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. A lot of ideas that are repeated, especially when it comes to highlighting the value of wisdom um, as, as, a, as, a, as a motivating factor, as an exhortation to the Son, to recognize that wisdom is of high value. It's of, of sort of inescapable value, and it has tremendous rewards. You have this, this emphasis on its value and its rewards, and it's sort of repeated ideas of its value and its rewards. It's... Its value is, is to be cherished. And you go back to, to Proverbs chapter 2 and you see how the, the, the father is exhorting the son to seek after it like its precious jewels, like its precious treasure, to have this motivation that is motivated by recognition of wisdom's value. So you have some of those ideas repeated and, and some of the benefits, for example, of, of it pro- producing life. Wisdom is life-giving uh, to a man. And that's, that's highlighted. It's, there's, there's rewards associated with the gaining of wisdom. He talks about um, his father's instruction uh, indicated a, a garland and a crown. You've, we've seen these ideas before too. There's, there's this reward of wisdom that is associated with the gaining of it and the application of it. We also saw how there's a different pathway and there's caution there about this different pathway, the pathway of the wicked, and a recognition that the pathway of the wicked is comprised of those whose, whose wickedness is something that they are, they are completely consumed by. Like they can't sleep until they've caused someone else to stumble. That the pathway of the wicked is this pathway that is oriented toward not just people engaged in wickedness, but it's people who are consumed by and motivated by wickedness and the purveyance of wickedness amongst others. They can't sleep until they've caused someone else to stumble is the uh, the image that we're given there, and yet there's this indication of their blindness because they don 't even know what they're stumbling over there, there's, there, there's the true nature of the wicked is that they're they're genuinely blind they're in complete darkness, but the pathway of wisdom is not like that, and so there's the caution there about this pathway, but then you get down to the end and you have this this really critical uh section and it's it's Highlighted by uh, chapter 4, verse 23, which is a, an exhortation about the heart. It's, it's this, this important injunction in verse 23 of keeping your heart. Or it could also be translated, guard your heart, protect your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life and there's these other verses around it that we'll talk about as well, but you, you have this key verse, and this verse is not just, I think, a key uh, statement in the context of the overall chapter, and especially in these concluding verses of the chapter, but, of course, this is a key principle of life in Christian living, right? To understand that it is out of the heart that flow the issues of life. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about, about this heart, um, issue, this principle of the heart a little bit. Now, we all know, well actually, just to kind of break the, the, the section down a little bit, uh, I thought it was an interesting way to kind of look at the the various uh, images that we see here. David Hubbard, in his commentary of this section in verses 20, 20 to 27, he calls this a lesson in the anatomy of discipleship. A lesson in the anatomy of discipleship. He says, the ear must receive and retain the words of the wise parent. You see that Reference to hearing in verse 20. The eyes must be riveted to them in their written form in verse 21, and must at the same time be fixed on the path to spot any obstacle or deviation. You see that in verse 25. So you have this reference to the ears and then the eyes. And then he says, The heart serves as the vault within which the treasures of wisdom are to be guarded and from which they are to be withdrawn and skillfully employed. You see this in verse 24, and then again in verse 23 that I just referenced. And then then he says, The mouth and lips are the conduit from which the water of the heart, which is wise and sound decisions and observations, flows in either fresh or fetid form. Who knows what fetid means? I had to look this one up. It's not good. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Rank, foul, extremely unpleasant odor. It's like these, these terms to describe not just it doesn't smell good, it's, it's rank, it's repulsive. So that's a pretty good way to describe this that, and draw this dichotomy from, from this passage of, of how it's out of the heart flow the issues of life, and it's either going to be issues, the, it, what's going to flow out of the heart is going to be fresh or it's going to be fetid. There's really no, no in-between. But the central passage, we'll, we'll look at the central passage with a little more focus in verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, we all know the importance of the physical heart, right? That's not lost on anybody. I'll just give you a little bit of information. You probably all know this and, and understand this. But your heart is the center of your cardiovascular system, and it is vitally responsible for just about everything that gives your body life. Ranging from the transportation of oxygen to the success of your immune system. It is really nothing more than a pump composed of muscle which pumps blood throughout the body, beating approximately 72 times per minute of our lives. The heart pumps the blood which carries all the vital materials which help our bodies function and removes the waste products that we do not need. For example, the brain requires oxygen and glucose which, if not received continuously, will cause it to lose consciousness. Muscles need oxygen, glucose, and amino acids, as well as the proper ratio of sodium, calcium, and potassium salts in order to contract normally. The glands need sufficient supplies of raw materials from which to manufacture the specific secretions. If the heart ever ceases to pump blood, the body begins to shut down, and and after a very short period of time, will die. So the heart, as a physical organ, is central to our vitality, our physical vitality. I'll never forget, and it, I, just, I got to thinking about this, um, it, was, it was literally almost probably to the, within, within a week or two, um, 40 years ago, that we were visiting my grandparents in South Georgia. I was nine or ten at the time, probably nine at the time, nine years old. Um and had a great we're having a great visit, a summertime, kind of a t- typical traditional summertime visit to the grandparents. And um, you know, have a have one night, have a nice dinner, enjoy time, you know, the typical time. I mean we were spoiled grandkids just like probably most are. I mean, our grandparents doted on us and we loved that. Um but in the middle of the night, one night, um uh, I was obviously asleep, my dad was still awake, and my grandfather wakes up and comes into the kitchen to get some water and my dad goes in and checks on him and he starts complaining of of pain in his shoulder and his arm. And of course, you know, my dad kind of pursued that knowing that that could be an indication of some type of heart issue. But to to kind of abbreviate the story, from that point until probably maybe no more than an hour and a half later, he was gone. They he went to the emergency room. They started checking him out and while they were out trying to find a doctor to come in, small town hospital, he falls back on the table, has a massive cardiac arrest, and he's just gone. So the nature of the heart as vital to life couldn't be more vivid in my mind as I was thinking about this, because I remember one day he's here, and the next day it's just, just like that. Well, when you think about the heart, obviously, Scripture places that same kind of importance or central nature to it, Um, as the actual physical heart does. But to kind of set our minds up to think about this in contrast to what are some of the common misunderstandings about the heart, let's kind of sound out some of what those might be. Like, what are some of the common views of what the heart really is when we talk about the heart, aside from it being a muscle that pumps vital nutrients and blood and oxygen and all that through our bodies to give us life? What are some of the ideas or concepts of the heart that are kind of common in our society and our culture? It's the center of our feelings, our emotions. That's probably the biggest, right? I mean, it's, it's probably the most common idea of the heart is that it's, it's the center of emotions. In fact, it's oftentimes drawn in stark distinction from that of the intellect or the mind, right? Uh, the heart is one thing, the emotions are one thing, but the mind is an altogether different thing. And you can have... In, in fact, that opens the door right, for complete logical contradiction between the two. And that's okay. That's understandable. It's acceptable. It's the nature of the thing. right? Um, Emily Dickinson, famous uh, poet, said this, The heart wants what it wants, or else it does not care. Tagging off of that, Woody Allen said this, The heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone and you fall in love and that's that. What was Woody Allen trying to rationalize there? Do you guys remember what happened with Woody Allen? Yeah, right? Or the um, classic um, songwriter and accomplished musician Selena Gomez wrote a song called The Heart What's Want, Wants What It Wants. And here's, here's sort of the, the clincher uh, lyric in the chorus. There's a million reasons why I should give you up, but the heart wants what it wants. In other words, I should give you up. Like mentally, intellectually, I should make this decision, but the heart, you know, the heart wants what it wants. So we have in our society this common view that the heart is the seat of the emotions, but to take it even further, the heart can actually the, the emotions the heart can actually control and take over what would be sound intellectual decision making and there's really nothing you can do about it that's kind of the the general philosophical disposition there now it's not only confined to that idea though because you have other you have other indications that there, that the there might be some awareness that the heart might be a little bit more than that in um, the one of my favorite indications of that is to go back to, to 1995. And in 1995, the Houston Rockets, a little sports story here. The Houston Rockets, led by one of the greatest centers of all time, Hakeem Olajuwon, Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon, in case you wonder know the nickname, they swept the Orlando Magic led by Shaquille O'Neal, Shaq, Shaq Diesel, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call him in the NBA Finals to win their second consecutive NBA Final, the Houston Rockets. I'll never forget it. I mean, I was in Houston at the time. I grew up in Houston. Clyde the Glide Drexler was traded from the Portland Trailblazers. I could give you all the details, right? Traded from the Trailblazers, came up. I mean, just, it was a great experience. But what was so great about it, again, this has nothing to do with the point, but Hakeem Olajuwon was sort of the old guard, you know, center, and Shaquille O'Neal was this rising, I mean, he was like, the new it guy in the NBA, and Hakeem, the Dream Alajouan, put on a clinic for four games straight and just swept them. It was a great experience. Now, here is the point: you guys need to maybe go watch some YouTube videos of that. <laughs> but the head coach Rudy Tomjanovich, after the oh, and by the way, they had a terrible regular season. This is the point that they had a terrible regular season, and they went into the NBA. They went into the playoffs as a six seed; so they were low seeded. And everybody was counting them out, and and actually leading into the finals. I mean, it was like the, the magic they had. Uh, Anthony, Hardaway, and Shaquille. I mean, they, they were going to wipe them out, and the, the Rockets swept them in four games straight in in the face of all this sort of opposition and public you know lack of confidence or whatever. And Rudy Tom, Tom Johnovich made a, a, a statement in a post uh, game interview at, the, at the, after the final game when they had won the championship. He talked about how everyone doubted us. Everyone doubted us. No one believed in us. And then he said this, don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. The heart of a champion. So that quote that is, I mean, it, it's, it's, if, you're, if you're a sports person at all, that's not an unfamiliar quote. It's not an unfamiliar uh, point in sort of sports history. Very uh, familiar statement. Don't un- ever underestimate the heart of a champion. So that's not really tied to emotions, That's more tied to what? Conviction and will, right? So at least there's an element of getting that maybe the heart has a little more to it than just emotion by that kind of statement in our sort of common secular society. Let's dig in a little bit more. So let's look at some uh, dictionary definitions, some Bible dictionary definitions of the heart. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Bible Theology says this. In Hebrew, it's, it's... Um, lab, or how do you pronounce it in Hebrew, Shane? Lab, Lab, is that the right pronunciation? And in the Greek, uh, it's cardia, which, you know, cardiology, cardiologist, that's kind of the the derivation of that. It occurs over 1,000 times in the Bible, making it the most common anthropological term in Scripture. It denotes a person's center for both physical and emotional, intellectual, moral activities. Sometimes it is used figuratively for an inaccessible thing, for example, the heart of the seas in Jonah chapter 2, or man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So, something that's inaccessible by normal, uh, natural um, observation. But clearly, from Baker's dictionary, it's something way more than just emotions, it's wrapped up into pretty much everything about man and who he is. Uh, the inner man, if you will. Easton's Bible Dictionary says that the heart is the center not only of spiritual activity, but of all the operations of human life. Heart and soul are often used interchangeably. The heart is the home of the personal life, and hence a man is designated according to his heart wise, pure, upright, and righteous, pious, and good. And there's all these scripture references to tie it back to, or to to, um, elucidate that. That statement. It's the the seat of the conscience. It is naturally wicked, and hence it contaminates the whole life and character. The heart must be changed, regenerated before man can willingly obey God. So clearly, we understand that the heart, from a biblical perspective, is something much more than emotions. And it's certainly something that is much more than this thing within us that can overcome us and control us in such a way that we have no ability to resist its allurements, resist its its desires, its passions. Um, It's something much more than just that. And of course, um, it was understood that way by the people of God, and it's clearly reflected in the testimony of Scripture. So, just to give you kind of a survey of this from Proverbs itself, you have emotion tied to references to the heart for sure Proverbs 15:13 a glad heart makes a cheerful face but by sorrow of heart a spirit is crushed so there is the element of emotion Proverbs 15:30 the light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones Proverbs 14:13 even in laughter the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief so there's this there is a connection to our emotions or the way that we are feeling and there's a reference to the heart. But you also have this idea of heart and mind. Proverbs 18.15, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs 23.12, Apply your heart to instruction, and your ear to words of knowledge. Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way. So there's this, in, this intention of of Intellectually planning away, but the Lord establishes his, his steps, and you also have this references to the heart and the will proverbs three five trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding proverbs two two in that section where it's highlighting the value of wisdom, seeking after it as it's, as, as though it's precious jewel it says According It says about wisdom, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart, willfully bending your heart toward understanding. And then Proverbs 7.25, Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Speaking of the adulterous woman. Let not your heart turn turn aside to her ways. So this willful turning aside of the heart. So clearly, in, even in just the context of Proverbs, we understand that the heart is the center of who we are. It's not just emotion. It's not just how we feel about a matter. But it is the heart, the mind, the will. It's the core of who we are as created in God's image. As men and women with, with the combination of feelings and thoughts and rational thinking... And willful decision making, choosing to do this or that, choosing to think about this or that, choosing to act in certain ways. based on all of your knowledge unless the heart drives you to it so it's a connection between what you know and what you do but the it's pa- really the nothing pa- the passive versus the active it's really nothing more than an unthinking organism within our body that pumps blood well from the standpoint of the physical organ for sure but the idea of obviously in, in scripture is that it is it's it's that core part of who we are. It has nothing to do with the physical blood pumper. That's right. I mean everything we're talking about is up in our heads. Right, but you you experience you experience the, the, the where this derived from is that you the way that you experience these things, you feel it in your heart. You, if you if you're anxious, you feel your your heart beats faster. The the physical experience of different things in life whether it's you're weighted down by something, or you're overcome with, with shame and guilt, or you're super excited about some upcoming event. Go ahead, Shane. I always find it interesting that in the New Testament, they associate compassion and sometimes anxiety with the bowels. It's right. the same kind of thing. You get an upset stomach right. sometimes whenever you see a distressful situation. So they weren't necessarily thinking anatomy no. and physiology the way we do. They just were, like you're saying, recognizing the reactions, right. physiological reactions to what's going on mentally. That, that may be a little bit difference in Greek culture, Hebrew culture, too. I think mean, the Greeks, if, if I remember right, had a different perception than we do in our current culture. More, more, compa- more compartmentalized and thinking um, and separating things out. Or yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, I mean, pick your physiological metaphor, right? I mean, you can pick your, your sort of your actual part of your anatomy, but it's in your gut. You feel it in your bones, you know. I mean, you can use all different ways to feel it because it does have the, the way that we process things, the way that we feel things, the way that we think about things, the way that life experience weighs on us. It does have physical effects, right? It has a range of physical effects, some of which are helpful, and motivating, and some of which can be very, very harmful, even physiologically detrimentally harmful. Yep. Just an aside on that, it's interesting how in modern society, people actually almost try to eliminate what's going on mentally when you have aches and pains and things going on in your body. Right. Whereas the ancient people recognized there was a connection spiritually and even in your belief system. We almost want to just treat it as a physiological thing. Back to your main point, I mean, your heart raises, your heart hurts, sometimes your bones hurt, and the scripture connects all those things back to spiritual realities. I mean, the pain of heartache, I mean, Billy Ray Cyrus said, don't break my heart, my achy breaky heart, right? I mean, there's actual physical pain here that, that, you know, you have to acknowledge, but... But, fi- but ultimately, I mean, I, I don't mean to make light of the point, but the fact of the matter is, is that, the, the, that the heart is at the core of who we are. And really, this is to draw a distinction from external realities and experiences, and, and it really is to try to drive home the point that we live our lives from the inside out and not the other way around. That we live life from the core of who we are out. And, and insofar as we try to tack on externally to our lives different characteristics, different types of behavior, we try to sort of comport our behavior in some certain way for some certain setting or some certain group of people so that they will think a certain thing about who we are, does not change who we are, right? It does not address the core of who we are. In fact, doing those kinds of things could only highlight the fact that we're a bit fraudulent in our representation of who we are. But also understanding this heart matter, it really highlights the point or the principle about what change is required, what transformation is truly about. And Jesus couldn't have put a finer point on this than anyone in Matthew chapter 15. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 15, let's just kind of review this whole account because it really sets this up in a very clear and, and, and intensely practical kind of way. Another one of these occasions where um, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, they're trying to get him caught in some type of uh, you know, law-based conundrum or, or really impugn his credibility as a rabbi and a teacher and someone to be followed. And so here's the setting. Then the Pharisees and scribes, Matthew chapter 15, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Implication, they're, not, they're unclean. The fact that they don't wash their hands before they eat is the breaking of a law that they had set up about what it meant to be clean. And really they were attaching cleanliness as something that happens from the outside in. That's, that's the idea here. He answered and said, "Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition for God commanded honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what would you have gained from me is given to is given to God he need not honor his father so for the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God you hypocrites well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said,This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the Pharisees were complete hypocrites, even as it related to the commandment to honor their father and mother. They weren't caring for their father and mother, and they were claiming that what they would have used, the resources they would have used to care for their father and mother, they had given to God because they're so spiritual. That was the 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 rebuke there. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Just a physiological process. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with, uh, with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So there Jesus kind of puts this in stark relief, right? He, in bold relief. This is what we're talking about. When we're talking about the heart or the nature of man and the nature of what defiles a man and what does not defile a man and highlights the point that life is lived from the inside out or as Proverbs would say, out of the heart flow the issues of life. Therefore, when you get to... This injunction, what does it mean to guard your heart? What does that mean? Make sure what's controlling it. Is it God or is it Satan? Okay. Take care to know what is controlling your heart, influencing your heart. What else? Any other ideas about guarding or protecting your heart? Okay. So you're thinking, so making sure that your thinking is informed by truth. What else? Well, guarding suggests so keeping things out. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's an interesting observation because it has two inferences there. The idea of keeping things out, so you're protecting influences from the outside in that would be not honoring to God. But there's also elements of keeping or dealing with what's in and keeping it from coming out. You understand what I'm saying? It's a, there's a protection. In other words, if out of, the, out of the heart flow the issues of life and there is sin or wickedness in your heart, you need to be on guard that that sin or wickedness that you are harboring in your heart, if it is not dealt with, it will come out and it will be destructive and deadly in nature. So it's, it's protecting it from both Sides, right? Both, both ideas. What's that? It comes out as action. That's right. So we can see that. I mean, I have this question here. Why is why is this so important? But I think the the answer is kind of obvious, right? That if out of our heart flow the issues of life, if we live life from the inside out, then protecting our heart, guarding our heart. Dealing honestly with what is in our heart is of paramount importance for us to walk in wisdom. And the injunction here is to do it with all vigilance, meaning you can't stop guarding your heart. It has to be something that is determined and persistent. Now, why is that the case? Why would Solomon used this way to describe the intensity of that guarding effort with all vigilance. Okay, so there's the constant barrage of the world around us. Why else? What does Jeremiah 17 say about the heart? You're, you're, you're hitting right on it. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, right? That we can, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're righteous when we're not. If we're not guarding our heart, if we're not confronting our heart with truth outside of us, with these words of wisdom, with the, the the eternal standard, objective standard of truth. If 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 our hearts are not being confronted by that, being checked by that, being washed and renewed by that truth, by that objective, eternal, transcendent, holy standard of God, then they can become wicked and deceive. We can deceive ourselves. And when you think about, now think about what the nature of a completely unguarded heart might look like. What would, what would that look like? If you just stopped paying attention to your heart. Any, any pictures come to mind? Any ideas come to mind? The ultimate in the unguarded heart, Genesis 6, 5, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The picture of the hearts of men completely unguarded is right. It's, un- it's, it's, it's unrelenting thoughts of evil. That's right. So when you see this passage of scripture that says, "Guard your heart, protect your heart, tend to your heart with all vigilance." It's important for us to recognize that that's just not a good idea or a passing good principle for Christian living. It is at the core of what it means to walk in righteousness and to continually be working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who's at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That a core principle of discipleship is us tending to our hearts, guarding our hearts, checking our hearts having the the thoughts and intentions of our hearts challenged and corrected and reproved by the truth of Scripture, continuously, all the time. I, I kind of have this, um, I don't know, I'd call it a mantra. It's probably not the right way to, to frame it, but I'm always thinking about especially because in in my work I'm dealing with human relationships and conflict all the time and dealing with differences of opinion and differences of understanding and uh, all the time. And I I constantly come back to, we need to figure out what the truth is, because that's what's going to set us free. We need to have our own hearts and motivations challenged and checked by what's actually true, what's objectively true because our hearts can deceive us. I have pride in my heart, and I think I'm right about this. I wouldn't be arguing so strong for this matter if I didn't think I was right about it. I'm not arguing because I know I'm wrong, but I just want to argue, although sometimes I like the sport of debate, so there's probably times where I have. Anyway, and that's, that's the wicked part of it. But the fact of the matter is, is that we need to be those who are pursuers of the truth, who are meditators upon the truth, and who recognize that in the absence of that unguarded process, in the absence of allowing ourselves to become unguarded, having our hearts unguarded, not having a vigilance about it, that the outcome is not safe. There is not some sort of uh, grace period for an unguarded heart. There's no promise of that. There's no indication of that from Scripture. That if we are not vigilant about guarding our hearts, then the true nature of our hearts, even as redeemed people of God, still having to deal with the, the fallenness of our sin nature, right? I mean, it's being, it's being redeemed and sanctified and renewed. We're trying to kind of work that out with fear and trembling, as, as it says in Philippians, right? So we still have that opportunity or that, that probably that, that tendency, that predilection to move toward certainly folly and ultimately wickedness. So we must guard our hearts with all vigilance because out of it flow the springs or all the issues of life. Any final thoughts before we close in prayer? It's just ironic, isn't it, that after all of this wisdom and all of this, these admonitions to his son, he messed his own life up badly. Yeah. But he gave some good counsel, even, even as his testimony about that. He was like, but he call me an idiot, but I can tell you it, you know, everything, I'm, everything I taught proved out. He had to go that. Yeah. Yeah. Someone else? Re- yeah. I, say, to, you know, we to, I guess I'm a checklist person, so that's why I put that on my to-do list. It's actually yeah. in my heart. But that's, it's really not me. I mean, it's got to be let the Holy Spirit be willing to let. Yeah, I think it's both and. I mean, I, I think that the the working out of your salvation with fear and trembling is, to me, the consummate picture. I, I, I can I can grab hold of that. I can understand that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not an either or. It's a both okay. and. And so, um, yeah, you can't. It's not going to happen without the work of the Spirit, for sure. Right. But... That doesn't abdicate us from engaging ourselves in that volitional process as well. So, So if someone was the wisest man and controls his heart, what chance do we have when you consider the end of his life and how he got out of control? Well, I think that the fact that we have the Spirit of God in us is, you know. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, right i mean that's but but we but well, I do i mean I, I don 't know about you. is this your confession time but no yeah I, I i just think it it emphasizes the the need for dependency and and trust and accountability and and forgiveness, yes having young kids, I was thinking while you were talking about that how diligent I am with them, that if I hear them saying something that isn't right, or, you know, how vigilant I am about trying to speak truth into their lives, Um, but then I think when it comes to our own heart, it seems more nebulous, and so it's easier for me to not think about guarding my own heart, but to me, it's a good picture of, like, how diligent are we to make sure our kids are yeah. Getting all the things that they need, then we need to apply that same. Yeah. Diligence. I mean, we definitely need forgiveness from our kids for our hypocrisy, yeah. right? I mean, we, we, we parent imperfectly. We parent hypocritically, you know, hopefully not all the time and hopefully not as a trajectory of our, our lives as we're trying to be sanctified. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're certainly recognizing and going after things in them that we might be sli- letting slide in our own hearts and minds routinely. All right, well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.